0: Hi, and welcome to Responsor Radio, where you ask and we answer questions of Jewish law in modern times. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip, Executive Vice President at Hadar, here with Rabbi Ethan Tucker, Rosh Hashiva at Hadar, a Center for Higher Jewish Learning based in New York City. Hey, how are you?
1: Okay, Avi. How's it going today?
0: Going well. I'm, I'm really interested in this question that we got today. It comes from a person's professional career. It's a question that's come up in their life. Um, And it's not from an industry that I'm in. So I haven't really thought of this question. I certainly haven't thought of it from the perspective of the questioner. And I'm curious what answers we have for the person writing and how this question and maybe the answer might have broader implications also beyond the four walls, as they say, of this question.
1: Sounds interesting. All right. Lay it out for us.
0: OK, I think this, the person writing this question is a researcher. So you could have that in mind. Okay. That's their perspective. They say, can Jews conduct audit studies? Hmm. And they give us an example. So here's an example. A research institute might send out fictitious resumes, a random selection of which have a characteristic that one worries is discriminated against, such as a name implying a particular ethnic minority. Right. Okay. And you then measure the difference in callback rates for interviews, right? So I'm familiar with this kind of study. Presumably, you have seen it as well, um, where they send out resumes. They're not real resumes. They change some aspect of the resume to see who's getting a response rate. Mm -hmm. So the questioner says, these studies are always approved by institutional review boards, or IRBs, I think is the industry lingo, Um, given the deception and lack of consent. They approve them when these costs are outweighed by the importance of the expected scientific benefits. But these boards are not engaging Jewish law and standards. What does halacha have to say about this?
1: Really interesting question. Uh, Yeah, I love questions like this, too. uh, where We're really forced to kind of figure out what even is the category. You know, we'll get a Shabbat question. I'll be like, well, the category is Shabbat. (laughs) But here, what are we engaging with?
0: And I would also say um, something that I love about this question is it's obvious to everybody that this kind of study may or may not be problematic, right? The questioner is describing that you have to bring a study like this past a board. right? And I just want to name that the role of that board is to check if this is ethical, right? Not all studies are ethical. Is this study ethical? And the board is saying, yes. It's ethical right. when the benefits outweigh the, the the crime or the problem. Presumably the problem here is lying. Um, and so or maybe you'll unpack some other problems for us. Um, and, and I just think it's interesting when we get to ask questions about ethics, modern ethics and halakha as being not entirely overlapping categories. Right. We know we want to be ethical. Right. And we know we want to be guided by Jewish law. And what do we do when Jewish law may actually not be completely synonymous with if it's ethical, it's fine?
1: Yeah. And I think we also have a tension that we'll talk about here, which is how does the potential ethical lapse um, or disadvantage caused to an individual trade off against some larger social good. That's what I hear in the questioner also. Well, it might be annoying for this person getting the fake resume, but if the scientific and social benefits outweigh that, maybe we should nonetheless allow it. And how might halacha think about that differently? Okay, that's great. Let's start with lying. Is there even a prohibition on lying? I mean, sure seems like there is at first blush when you read the Torah. I mean, just listen to these words Midvar Sheker Tirchak, stay far away from anything that's not true. Or Velotish Shakru Ishba Amito, you shouldn't lie to your fellow. That seems pretty straightforward.
0: Uh huh. Yes. Yeah, so, so no-go maybe? It's <laughs> actually
1: not so simple. It's pretty shocking, actually. The overwhelming weight of jurisprudence that takes up these verses comes down on the side of viewing the prohibitions here on lying as wrapped up in court processes. So actually, if you look at the broader verses here, the first one I quoted is from Parshat Mishpatim. And it starts out by saying, Lotate mishpat Don't unfairly deal with a poor person in a court case. Midvar mm-hmm. sheker, stay far away from lying or from falsehood. Al Taharog, and don't kill innocent or righteous people. So actually, the Gemara in Shvuot asks like 12 questions. How do you know you're not allowed to do this? midvar sheker tirchak, stay away from falsehood. And all of the things in that list, down to the last one, are a judge can't do this, you can't do this as a witness, basically saying the court system, which is about seeking truth, cannot tolerate any kind of lying.
0: So lawyers can't lie, but researchers... Maybe. Totally fine. (laughs) So I'm not yet
1: permitting anything, but I just want to know you can look at that verse and say, oh, no, that's not to an average person. And the same thing of the broader verse there is don't steal and don't deny or contradict, but don't deny things, which actually seems like it means don't steal in the first place. When you're caught having stolen, don't lie and don't deny it and say, I didn't steal it. And velotishakru, don't lie. And then velotishavu vishmi vashaker, don't take a false oath uh, in my name, actually also gets read by a lot of interpreters as, that's one long sentence of, don't lie as part of stealing from and defrauding people, Mm -hmm. okay? But what is that different from? That's different from the notion that, well, you always have an obligation to tell the truth. Like George Washington, right? The cherry tree, the notion that just like, on its own face, I am not allowed to be, uh, you know, dishonest. And in fact, you have a famous case between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, arguing over how does one describe slash praise a bride at her wedding? And Beit Shammai basically say, you got to tell it like it is. You can't kind of inflate or distort or flatter in any way that you don't believe is true. And Beit Hillel basically say, no, you always say, oh, she's so beautiful. She's so pious. She's the greatest person ever, even if you don't think that. And Beit Shammai say to Beit Hillel, what are you talking about? Like, if that's not true, and you say that, the Torah says, midvar sheker tirchak, stay away from falsehood. Yeah, Seems like Beit Shammai's standard is, a a, a Jew, a person, uh, it's just not allowed to tell lies. To which, Beit Hillel, answer the following. What, according to you, if someone goes and buys something in the market, and they realize they got an awful deal, or... They just are now very nervous about whether they should have bought that. Are you going to tell them, no, that was great, that was a fantastic thing that you bought? Or are you going to tell them, oh, yeah, that was really terrible? And Beytilel's rhetorical assumption is, well, only a horribly mean person would make the person feel even worse about this mistake that they made. Of course, you are supposed to lie and basically tell them no 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 that was great i don't know what you're feeling bad it's fantastic so you have here actually two interesting things in this text one is baitilao both in the context of the the bride and in the context of the poorly acquired purchase uh, are saying you lie <laughs> or you don't tell the truth or i think put simply baitilao simply allow for white lies and Beit Shammai actually seemed to agree that that's true some of the time. Otherwise, Beit Hillel's rhetorical argument wouldn't work, right? They're like, come on, even you would agree that you wouldn't do this to someone who had just bought something in an ill-advised purchase in the market.
0: I think that it's an example of using a, an extreme test case, right, to see to see the limits, which is, of course, something that our halachic texts do a lot as a tool to help us better understand something. Um, Telling the bride that she's beautiful feels like such an obvious one to me, Um, both in the realm of, you know, for Beit Shammai to say even that, like that, if if you're gonna lie once in your life, mm-hmm. that's the moment. Right. Um, and they say no, you can't. Right. And and maybe it's like not that telling for Hillel if he, you know, just because you're willing to lie to the bride that she's beautiful doesn't make you a liar. <laughs> you know, it's like that is the most extreme case. Um, I don't really understand the the story about like I, I can't remember ever being in a situation where I'm like lying to make someone feel good about a purchase. I guess it's maybe saying like oh, your new apartment is beautiful. And then you go home and you're like, why did they buy that apartment? Yeah, I, I, think that's, I
1: think that's exactly what it is. Or a sense also that maybe someone overpaid for something mm-hmm. and you're just kind of making them feel better about it. And no, that's a lovely piece of handcrafted ivory that you'll never use for anything practical <laughs> yeah. and will sit on your table. But, you know, no, you, that's a, what a wonderful souvenir from your trip, right? There's some notion there of however exactly we understand the case of there's something relational at stake um, that is more important than your truth telling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, this ambiguity, I'm not sure, like, did Am buy into it? And that's how the rhetoric works. Or maybe it is more like what you're saying. They're each actually staking out. Uh, kind of, you know, extreme positions, um, you know, at least Beit Shammai, of like, you just never actually cross that line.
0: Right. I think what's most useful here that I want to pull out is what you just said, which is that really what Beit Hillel is trying to do is is create cases where there is a counterweight, right? It Mm -hmm. create cases where there is a reason to lie as opposed to you know, I don't know, I lied because it didn't matter, right? Like, they asked me what job I did, and I said I was a fireman because, like, it would be funny. You know, (laughs) I was like, well, there was no reason to lie about that. Um, They're trying to create cases where, no, maybe there is a reason.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, There's other things that sort of imply in that direction. Um, You have a weird, interesting statement in the Talmud that sages, Talmidei Chachamim, people somehow in the world of learning, uh, they only lie about three things. Their learning, their bids, and their gifts. Now, we won't go into unpacking what all of those mean, but the implication seems to be, oh, sages are supposed to tell the truth all the time, except in these areas, there's some reason that they're allowed to kind of Bend it. So there we have a little bit of that dynamic of even with some things, we authorize it. But much more interesting is the implication is well, what about everyone else who's not a sage? It seems like maybe they're Ah, lying right and left, right? So you have this statement, actually. The Sefer Yireim, Rabbi Eliezer of Metz in the Middle Ages, uh, says the following A lie that does not lead to any further evil. The Torah never forbids that. Yeah, that's right?
0: such a clear statement.
1: Now, I'm not saying everyone agreed with him. There are clearly views that tow a harsher line and see lying as problematic everywhere. Okay, just because the Torah didn't forbid it doesn't mean that it's not still forbidden or on a rabbinic level. But what that formulation is helpful for is at least showing. Not like a showstopper to say, well, that's not true, so you can't do it, right? There is some deep engagement here, whether from the Beit case, which of course becomes normative, uh, the question of the bride and helping people out with, you know, purchases they're feeling bad about, um, or the unusual place of the sages that essentially says, no, what the Torah cares about is not lying in the context of. Court proceedings and disputes where the lie is just a tool to get something illegally from someone else. But truth telling may have a more complicated relationship to reality and human relationships.
0: Yeah, I think this text is super relevant to our question here because if you change lying to, into a tool, right? then your job is to do good in the world, and your job is to not do bad in the world. And lying is a tool, and sometimes you can use that tool to do bad, and sometimes you can use that tool to do good, like with the bride. Um, And it's up to you to distinguish between the two, but your goal is to say, how do I do good in the world? And then how do I use lying and truth-telling strategically to achieve that ends, which is very different than saying the definition of good is truth-telling and the definition of bad is lying.
1: Yeah. Now, I want to acknowledge that this is very uh, dangerous, right, in all kinds of ways, particularly when we live in a moment where people feel that truth is under assault in all kinds of ways. And, you know, Assertions and attacks on fake news and what you can believe and what you can't believe, and the sense in which we may actually live in a moment where, even if the Torah doesn't command about this, right, we might actually feel like we're in a vulnerable moment where, no, 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 we want to insist, right, that everyone or as much as possible is a straight arrow. So I don't want to dismiss that piece of it, which I think is very real. But in terms of sharpening the answer of what does halacha have to say about this from the questioner, I want us just first understand, which I think you very well put, it's not as if you can just say, well, of course you're never allowed to lie. That You can't draw that actually out of the canon in a way that's perhaps surprising. It doesn't mean we're neutral on truth-telling, Um, but it does mean whether we think of it as a tool or something that is sometimes in competition uh, with other relational things that are coming up, you're going to have to ask a question about it.
0: Yeah, you know, it makes me realize this... This question brings a very particular kind of research project and question, but there are probably a lot of social science research that we would forbid if we took a strict line on never lying, you know, like every psychology experiment where I say, look at this picture, but what I'm actually measuring is, you know, did you pick up the pencil on the way in with your right hand or your left hand? Um, You know, that there's probably this whole industry might be at risk, actually.
1: Correct. And we'll get to, I think, another factor there, which is how much do people know about Uh, what's happening, even if they don't know directly what happened to them. That is to say, if you have like a placebo as part of a medical study, there's a difference if you give someone a drug and you say, I'm giving you a drug and this is going to save your life. And then it turns out, you know, you don't do that as opposed to we're doing a study. Some people are going to get a placebo. Some people are not. I'm not telling you what you're getting. But in any event, we'll come back to that. But I think that notion of the deception and consent, right, which was also raised by the questioner, may be relevant. But I want to go to a different category. So if if on some level, the truth issues I feel like are addressable with this, mm-hmm. right? In other words, that the Sefer Urayim points us to a whole set of other things that might be, well, look, is the lie advancing good in the world or advancing bad in the world? That's probably addressable.
0: I'll just say um, before we move to the next question that That still leaves us with the question of what's the study for and what are you trying to prove and is this actually going to make the world better or is this a gotcha set up because you want to attack a company In particular, you know, there's that just that that's it's not a given that just because you can get past that, you necessarily would come to a yes on any particular study.
1: Good. So that's where I want to go with the other category, which I think is much more significant and maybe even being hinted at by the questioner. Uh, in terms of something a little more distinctively Jewish and halachic. There's another verse in the Torah. Don't take advantage of one another and fear your God. Um, This is a kind of doublet of an earlier verse in Parshat Behar that also talks about not taking advantage of other people. And the way the rabbinic tradition generally understands it is, the first verse of don't take advantage is don't overcharge people for stuff when you're buying and selling, it's like mm-hmm. just hardcore, direct financial, you know, taking advantage. And this is about Ona dvarim. This is about somehow taking advantage of the position you're in vis-a-vis your words and behaviors that potentially wrong someone else. And the addendum of fear your God is I'm not going to be able to objectively point to, hey, you overcharged that person by 50%. It's going to be something about how you spoke or how you behaved that you might be able to hide behind a legitimating narrative, but God, and therefore you, should and will know <laughs> you did something deceptive here. So the Mishnah spells it out explicitly. It says, yeah, just like you can do ona'a, kind of taking advantage of and overcharging in actual uh, commerce, kach ona'a bedvarim. You can do that with words and behaviors as well. And here's the example. You can't say to a merchant, hey, how much does this cost? And you know you have no intention whatsoever of buying. So you're walking around, I mean, I'll give a simple example. You're walking around um, on Shabbat afternoon, okay? (laughs) You have no intention of buying anything. Mm -hmm. And you do some window shopping, right? Aside from even the Shabbat mood around this question. um, Oh, how much does that cost? Okay, you have no intention. But even there, right, it could potentially be, it's not appropriate to do it on Shabbat, but you have some intention to buy it on Monday. We're talking about something, we're just for the fun of it You ask what something costs. I
0: think it's, um, I always think of the example of people who go to test drive cars that they never intend to buy because it would be fun to drive the car and or people who go to open houses, uh, like real estate agents open houses because they kind of want to like see the new construction in the neighborhood and you own your house. You have no interest in buying a house. You're just wasting that person's time.
1: That's right. This Mishnah would forbid that. And there's an added thing where uh, Rabbi Shmael the Rabbi Yose uh, commands, offers instruction to Rabbi, to Rabbi Yehudah Nasi, and says the three things I want to make sure you never do. And one of them is, don't literally stand over an object for sale when you don't have any money on you. So, meaning
0: you're blocking someone else from seeing it. Okay.
1: So, this is the question What's the problem here? Okay. Why do you need to be careful of this? And there's kind of two ways of thinking about it. One is what you just said, right? Which is you're actually by standing over it, or might even include like you're handling it, you're looking at it. There's another customer that might buy it who is now potentially not going to see it, not going to have access the merchant will lose that opportunity, and you have no money, so there's no way you're going to buy it, right? That's one way of understanding it. The other way of understanding it, and the problem in the Mishnah as well, potentially, is you are making the merchant feel bad. What do we mean by that? You're getting their hopes up. You are manipulating them in a way that is unfair to them. Now, it's an interesting thing because the ona'a category, ona'a in dvarim, in words, I think those two interpretations are in part uh, struggling with how much does this category need to be like the problem of overcharging someone? Mm -hmm. And how much is it a separate thing about kind of emotionally manipulating? Because there's another example given in the Mishnah, not our direct case, which is in the category of ona'a dvarim, is, for instance, you're not allowed to say to a ba'al tshuva, to someone who has returned to religious practice, oh, I remember when you and your ancestors, you know, used to commit all these violations and violate all this stuff. That doesn't have to do with any kind of financial loss. It's just emotional. So maybe the issue here is also emotional. Or maybe, no, when we're talking here about not blocking people's access to something— a different kind of loss that you're inducing.
0: Yeah, there's a way in which I wonder if this category is almost like an internal version of Halakha saying, just because you passed the Institutional Review Board doesn't mean it was okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and that it's like, just because you could sort of letter of the law, not say that you were stealing something, doesn't actually mean you should behave that way. We're setting a, a different, higher, more thoughtful, more caring standard.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And that then leads us to have to break down um, this question, I think, into a whole bunch of uh, follow-up questions. There was an interesting uh, paper that I came across by Rav Yitzchak Oshinsky, uh, who is a contemporary uh, rabbinic judge in Jerusalem, and he actually um, answers a, a similar, like very similar question. Um, that is, you know, different, but you'll you'll hear um, about, can you do a survey of prices in different stores that is posing as people really wanting to buy stuff? Mm-hmm. But what you're doing is a kind of like consumer almost like reports. consumer reports type thing where the person going in and doing the survey has no intention of buying anything, right? But they're trying to gain information about the market and how yeah. it's operating. Consumer Reports a lot more times is about kind of, you know, quality of the product. This is really like a price survey. Um, and he's asking, and, and what if in particular, the only intention is, you know, research? right? Um, it's not, is it to help customers find the right prices? You know, is it not? Inflation. Et cetera. And he makes an interesting distinction. So he sort of comes to the conclusion. He says, look, anything that can, at the end of the day, be tied to the seller's interest in some way is legitimate. So if you go around and, yeah, you check all these prices and you ask, even though you're not intending to buy, how much does that cost, right? And it would seem you're violating the Mishnah's rule because you're not buying it. But he says, but if at the end of the day, you're going to publish and share something that will help people find the store they most want to buy from, and then maybe incentivize other people who maybe are charging too much to lower their prices, but then get more customers. So you're actually like part of the ecosystem of helping the merchants do their business. And it's not ona.
0: Yeah. It's in some basic sense, was there a reason?
1: Yeah. And was there a reason that is therefore not taking advantage? of the merchant.
0: Yeah, and not only that, it sounds in that case like is it helping the merchant, which I think correct. you could also make in this case, right? If this studies like this help these organizations to discover their own biases and to correct for them, um it's actually also a service to those jo- to those companies.
1: Good. And I want to I want to come back to that in a second. Revoshinsky sort of contrasts this with if someone's just sort of writing an economics paper. They're like interested like, hmm, how does the American economy like function in 2022? Um he does not feel okay yeah. with you going into a store, getting up the hopes of someone who's selling something for and potentially maybe even costing them, you know, time and access to other people. Um just for your sort of broader edification about how the economy works.
0: That I think is really interesting because I could really see that playing out for our listeners, right? Because we may have some listeners who are professional researchers who are, you know, at institutions, research institutions, universities, where those studies will actually get published and impact the field. But we also may have a lot of callers who are high school students or grad students, you know, or college students. They want to just... Or hobbyists. Right. They want to conduct their own study. You know, I'm a high school senior. And so I called these four places and sent my res- sent a fake resume. And um, and and there they might actually ask a separate question, which is if this is just going to go to my, you know, advisor in my high school and never make a broader impact on the society, then maybe it's more wrong.
1: hmm. So let's maybe try with this frame of, you know, Ona'a and then potentially what it looks like to understand different versions of it as yes or no, playing to the advantage, you know, of the various players here. These are some of the follow-up questions, basically, I would want to ask about any study like this. So the first is, does it actually waste employers' time and money? right? In other words, do they need to spend time tracking down false leads of these fake resumes that don't exist that then prevent them from hiring effectively? It's like a time tax on them that actually is like going to hurt their business. It sounds like, in many cases, as it's being described here, the callback is like less than a minute. Right. In other words, that's not really a huge use of time. I find these five things I'll I'll call and leave a message. But I don't have a sense of how much does the sifting process take time and how much do these false leads actually impose a burden?
0: Yeah, I think you might also have a question of how common practice is this, right? If half of the resumes that come to me through the site I'm using are fake, then that's really significant. And also, you might have other side effects, right, of like, oh, every time I encounter someone with this name, they never call me back because it turns out they're not real, <laughs> right? Um, whereas if it's like here and there, you know, in I'm a hiring manager and I encounter this once a year, then then probably very minimal.
1: Yeah. And I think, right. So that's a scope of time. And it also leads, I think, to a second question I would ask, which is, Is it sort of baked into the system? Like, do the hirers ever find out? Because that feels like it would also mitigate the issue. If people know, yeah, part of doing business in this field is there are these audits. They're out there. I went into business knowing that that would be a part of it. Yeah, sometimes that's annoying or I don't get a call back. Um, But I'm not actually really being deceived. Um, It's just part of the cost of doing business in a way that it's not a part of the cost of doing business to have someone with no intention of buying, uh, you know, come in and ask you like manipulatively how much something costs. But even there, shop owners take for granted that there's some value to kind of like window shoppers, people are in your store. It feels like it's a place to be.
0: And it also could be industry specific, right? If I own an art gallery on a row of art galleries that tourists come to look at, I may know that my business model is that, ha- you know, 80% of people who walk into my store just want to see what's new. And that's that's built in.
1: Right, right. And that, this is maybe, ha- it's half a question and half a recommendation. I do feel like it would mitigate the Ona'a issue the more these kinds of studies were maybe locally undercover but globally very much out in full sunshine of people know that that happens out there in the world. No one's hiding it, even though in this interaction, you may not know whether I'm doing that. And then I would have a third question, which goes to what Ravoshinsky, I think, was trying to do there. From a purely capitalist perspective, just in a narrow, almost short-sighted way, but focusing in on the question of, the interests of the various parties involved. Can we say that this is ultimately for the benefit of commerce? Okay, we'll get to the the other issues that may be at stake here, but that feels a bit tough for me. Um, in this specific case, it feels like this operation is ultimately meant to shame employers into hiring some people who are being overlooked not really about increasing their economic activity. That is to say, the goal here is pursuing fairness and justice. I don't see the obvious line from this study to, oh, and this is going to make your business so much better, you're going to be happy we did it. But I don't know.
0: I disagree. I actually don't see that at all. I think that there are probably many companies that want to have a more diverse team and they know that they want to have a more diverse team because they understand all the research on the ways in which more diverse teams actually make for better companies. And yet they have internal bias, you know, that they're struggling to overcome and they need help. And studies like this help shine light on where those biases are and how they um, and how they might overcome them, that that the industries themselves, the businessmen themselves, the business people themselves are the ones who learn the most from a study like this. Um, So I don't see any role of shame in it. I see it as a tool that allows the economy to understand how it's functioning so that it can choose how it wants, whether it wants to function that way.
1: Yeah. So I would want to know if that's the case. I mean, I would think if it was completely in the company or the entity's interest just from their own financial bottom line, they would probably commission that study. And
0: they very well might.
1: Where it seems like that's not the questioner's case, where the questioner seems to be worried about deception, where the company is not actually a party to it.
0: Ah, meaning they might commission it only about their own company, although they might be wanting to hear about other industries. Sure. Other industries, meaning I may work for store A, but I want to know about the prices and the hiring practices in store B, C, and D also.
1: That might be. Um, yeah, that's where I say that, that that would be my question. I agree with you to, to the extent that the second the, uh, the people hiring here are thrilled that this is happening as a useful tool. Well, then the question kind of melts away and there's definitely not an onaa concern at that point. I think the questioner was coming from a place of, we feel like we have to get this information without necessarily the full buy-in of everyone in the system. Are we allowed to deceive them?
0: Yeah. I'm curious if it matters whether the hiring managers ever find out in the same way, whether the store owner ever discovers that the person coming in was really shopping or was not shopping. um, Does that change the calculus on Ona Atvarim? I
1: think it does. And that goes to two other dimensions that I want to highlight here. You know, another way of thinking about this is what you're actually trying to help someone or the field do here is not to violate a prohibition. Meaning, the question of can you engage in an act of ona'a, of deception, as it were, if your motivation is to prevent something forbidden from happening, right? And That there is more room for. You find sources kind of talking about that, like you might lie to someone, you might deceive, uh, you might do any number of things because you are trying to either yourself or get someone else not to do something that's forbidden. If you are motivated by, I am trying to help this person stop discriminating, that is arguably not ona'a to the extent that what you're actually going to do is share back that information and offer them a pathway to improve and change and say, here's what we've found. We think this is important for you to know. This is something that any, in this case, ethics abiding, you know, sort of more broadly like halachically oriented person would want to know, maybe then you disagree over what you think the findings showed. But if the motivation is that, and it's not just being used to like, you know, as you put it earlier, like get gotcha points against someone, but right. we're actually trying to move things in a right direction, That's the first thing I think is like an important uh, potential exception to onaah. And the second thing, which I'm a little nervous about saying, but it feels actually really important, there are some who think that the prohibitions of onaah don't apply to wicked people. Okay, hmm. meaning Rav Chinen de Rav in the Gemara in Bava Metzia says it says Lo Ishat Amito, don't take advantage of your fellow.
0: That means don't lie to the good guys.
1: That's right. It's got to be your fellow in Torah and mitzvot. Someone who sort of shares your project, and this actually gets codified in uh, the Shulchan Aruch by the by the Rama, by Rav Moshe Isserles in one view, where he says, "Yeshomrim, there are some who say, al onaat dvarim Hashem,' only God fearing people, as it were." are uh, subject to the prohibition of you know, not taking advantage of them through words. Now, I think it's obvious why I'm nervous about saying that, because whenever you start dividing up people into the good guys and the bad guys, that's dangerous. And in particular, in our contemporary highly polarized moment, Um, politically and socially, where it feels like everyone's racing to divide everyone up into the good guys and the bad guys. Yeah,
0: and or everyone is the bad guys, Or
1: everyone is (laughs) the bad guy, right? The whole thing can fall away. But I am raising it because I do think that is some of the language that gets at even what might be more of a gotcha right approach on some of this. It's not necessarily really gotcha. It's about, I think there is injustice in the world. I feel like I have to stop it. I feel like this person that I am deceiving is actually in some way part of the problem. And therefore, yeah, I'm going to use some deceptive tools against this person who's a bad actor right. in order to get to that better outcome. Now, I don't like that, right? I, I actually, I, I, part of me even like recoils at that kind of politically in all kinds of ways. But I think if we're honestly both assessing what might be the role of a study like this, and we have all our questions like, is it, who's doing it, why, whose cooperation do they have? I do also just want to honestly share what is some of the internal language of what it means to say, I'm normally concerned about those things. But here, it's something a little different because I'm not just taking advantage of someone. I'm taking advantage of someone who I think takes advantage of other people.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right. It does sort of divide the question into two. Maybe the first level is, is there something manipulative or dishonest about the way I'm running this study? And then the second is, is that okay? You know, is there a justification for doing something manipulative or dishonest? And those may be different bars that we might cross. I wanted to just add one other layer, which I don't see in the question itself, but I'm curious about. If you think that we as Jews have any obligation to be cautious as we read studies like this, right? I'm not a researcher. It's not going to come up in my life. Um, But I do read studies like this. Should I, when I read the study, be paying attention to how much deceit was a part of this? And am I liable in part of that complicit in some way just by reading and, and taking in the information?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. And my instinct is that by taking in the information, you're not really doing anything. And to the extent you want to have the, your antennae up in that moment of, well, this might inform what I think is appropriate to do in the future or what is not appropriate or to the extent I have any influence over something like that getting funded or being pursued or something I would do in my own organization, I feel like it would be a forward-looking assessment like that. I don't think the consumption of the information is something that can be criminalized or forbidden Mm -hmm. you know, in some basic sense. But I do think, and what I appreciate really from the questioner is not just by default saying... I don't know, there was some ethics board that approved it, so therefore it's fine. And that sometimes Torah does call us to have other standards in mind that we may not have thought about and the larger society may not have thought about. And sometimes it's just a question of a little bit of a prod um, in a certain direction. I actually think sometimes a study like this can run exactly the same way and then literally the way it is shared out at the end is either potentially constructive or destructive. Uh And it's less about, should I ever have tried to find out this information? Is there no way for us to ever approach an employer this way? It's a little bit of a check on, are our intentions at the end of the day to make a more constructive uh, environment in which people are not taken advantage of. And then you really want as many people's buy-in as possible to that process.
0: So many of the questions that we address on this podcast are taking questions about how we live our lives as Jews and then bringing them into a modern contemporary moment and saying, you know, how, how does that ancient practice manifest today? And one of the things I appreciate about this question is it that it flips that, actually. We say we're moving through the world today and that halacha, that Jewish law, is actually a lens that we can bring to pretty much everything we do. You know, for this person, it's bringing it to their work. Um, but in Ona At it's every time you walk into a store, every time you open your mouth, every time you attend a wedding, um, every time you ask yourself, how am I going to phrase this comment, is an opportunity to draw on Jewish law uh, to help guide us into being the kind of people that we want to be and living our lives as best we can. Um, and so thanks for engaging in this question. Thank you. Please play fair, tell no lies, be good to people, open up your eyes. Have a halachic question you'd like answered on the show? Email us at halacha at hadar dot org. That's H-A-L-A-K-H-A-H at hadar.org. Responsor Radio is a project of the Hadar Institute. Thanks to Jeremy Tabak for producing this podcast and to David Khabinski for recording and editing this episode. For sentiments like these Well, no matter At least you were distracted for a while Please play fair Tell no lies Be good to people